We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. I want to introduce the team, though they probably don't need it. Um, Dr. David Starty, one of Britain's best-known constitutional historians. He has written numerous best-selling books and presented television series on the subjects including Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, the monarchy and the Churchills. In April, he has a new book coming out, Magna Carta and Us. Diana Rose QC is a barrister specialising in civil liberties and public law. She represented Julian Assange in the Supreme Court and Binyam Mohamed, a British resident detained in Guantanamo Bay. A fierce opponent of secret courts in the UK, she is also currently acting for The Guardian, seeking disclosure of letters written by Prince Charles to government ministers. And then there's Rory Stewart on my left, Rory Stewart OBE, Conservative MP and best-selling author. His career has included 6,000-mile trek across Afghanistan, where he founded an NGO, and an official posting in war-torn Iraq. He was presented television documentaries on subjects including Lawrence of Arabia and Afghanistan, and was last year elected chair of the key Defence Select Committee, in which capacity he published a report today on the failure of the UK to respond to ISIL. In the audience, we have also got uh, distinguished guests. The ones I'm going to name are David Carpenter, Professor of Medieval History at King's College London, who's written a new translation and commentary on Magna Carta. He just says to me the other day he doesn't like compliments, but I think it's a superb book, so I shall just encourage you to buy it afterwards where he will be signing copies. And my old school friend, Edward Folks, Lord Folks, QC, Minister of State for Justice, who has, uh, as a member of the justice team, is critic of the expansion of rights under the Human Rights Act. Um, Charters are actually nothing really new. They weren't new by the time John appeared. They go back thousands of years to King Cyrus, who founded the Persian Empire and ruled the lands currently occupied by ISIL. And he issued a code in 539 BC granting freedom of conscience to the Jewish tribes and abolishing slavery were the words, I, Cyrus, king of the world. (laughs) These charters were almost always acts of regal munificence. By 1215, this was not the case for King John. He had no claim to be ruler of his own kingdom, let alone the world. He was forced to the ancient Saxon meeting place at Runnymede, kicking and screaming. And the concessions we know as Magna Carta were wrung out of him. Most people are aware of the two famous chapters, 39 and 40, which declare that no free man is to be punished save by the lawful judgment of his peers, and I quote this beautiful sentence, to no one will we sell, to no one will we deny or delay right or justice. Still at 800 years distance, that 
sentence has the power to move. And I think Lord Bingham was right when he said it should be inscribed deeply into the walls or the entrance of the Ministry of Justice. Um, <clears throat> reading David's book, David Carpenter's book, I was struck, and this is an education to me reading these books around this subject, I buy the scope of Magna Carta. In a few thousand words, it's just a single piece of parchment, as we know. The contract between the king and the rebel barons addresses a huge range of subjects, quite apart from justice, ecclesiastical, political, economic, taxation, social and local government issues were all covered. And what comes through, I think, is the spirit of medieval civilization, the same sophistication that you see in the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, the illuminated manuscripts of the time, and the early decorated Gothic architecture style of, say, Worcester Cathedral, where John was buried in 1516. Um, we're going to have a similarly wide-ranging debate tonight. I hope and pray that either the audience or the speakers will touch on the following issues. Was Magna Carta a particularly Anglo-Saxon uh, charter? Was it something asserting Anglo-Saxon uh, virtues and qualities against the Norman, alien Norman culture? The charter, as you may know, was barely referred to during the Tudor period. It's not even mentioned in Shakespeare's uh, play, King John. So how did it survive the 16th century to become the standard uh, for rights and liberty in the 17th century, the basis of a Bill of Rights in England and America, the Declaration of Independence in America, the inspiration of a hero of mine, John Wilkes, and, of course, the Chartists? Winston Churchill referred to the Magna Carta as the foundation of principles and systems of government, which neither King John or his nobles dreamed. Is it too much to claim that Magna Carta was, in fact, the start of parliamentary democracy? Magna Carta is greatly revered in America, probably more so than here. In the 50 years between 1940 and 1990, there were something in the region of 900 mentions and citations of the Magna Carta in federal and state courts, and 60 in the Supreme Court. Yet the US has Guantanamo Bay, it has dragnets, dragnet uh, surveillance, mass surveillance without warrant, and our record is not a great deal better. Uh, there were some, uh, we have um, secret courts, mass surveillance, and only a few years ago I remember writing article after article, article uh, first of all, attacking 90 days without detention, then attacking 42 days without uh, 42 days detention without charge or arrest. Um, I wonder this question as well: Are we in danger of letting the heritage industry swamp the bigger issues, both the historical and the current ones uh, surrounding Magna Carta? Is in two weeks' time? There's a London Global Law Summit in London. Sorry, in London. Uh, which says it will be a unique opportunity to explore what the future holds for global business and the rule of law. I have never heard those phrases put together before. <laughs> Tim Berners-Lee wants a Magna Carta for the internet. So at the end of this, I will ask both the, all the panellists and you to say whether you want a Magna Carta, a new Magna Carta, a new constitutional settlement. So that's quite enough from me. And I'm going to hand over to David Starkey, who's going to introduce us to a bit of the history. Now, typically, we've heard a lot of guff from Henry on the subject <laughs> of Magna Carta. Magna, <laughs> Magna Carta is a great theme for guff. Let's try and be a little more sense, hard sense, on this subject. Magna Carta is not a creation of 1215. The document of 1215 is abortive. It lasts barely a few weeks. In order to understand Magna Carta, we need to look at it as lasting at least a decade. That's the first thing. In other words, it is, to use a dreadful phrase, an, not an event, but a process. That's the first thing we need to remember. Secondly, we <laughs> need to put it in the context of civil war, of treason, of intense conflict, without most of the time, I think, a single hero or a single guiding <coughs> intelligence. 
The notion that you had some sort of great and good like Stephen Langton is tosh, is not there. What we have instead is a typical product of chaos. It's also particularly important, I think, to realise that the reason Magna Carta survives is that eventually both sides of the political spectrum, John's opponents and those who were his diehard supporters, are finally to agree on a residual text. So those are, if we just try to get some of those points there, I think it will help us. And the most important thing to remember is this is an awful warning of the futility of violence and revolution, something which I suspect our American friends in this context find very hard to understand because, of course, they tend to idealise it. Let's actually look at why John is in Runnymede and why John actually has to agree. John inherits England, or possibly murders his way to the throne, or whatever, in 1199. And within five years, he's lost the better half of a vast Anglo-French empire. He's lost his hereditary lands of Normandy and of Anjou and Maine. He then finds himself, curiously enough, never having paid, I think, terribly much attention to England, he'd always been much more interested in Ireland, spending a lot of time in England. And suddenly England has this immense slap of firm government, and not only England, but Wales, and not only Wales, but Ireland, and not only Ireland, but but Scotland. And by the end of this period, John has established a kind of British empire, arguably the first British Empire in which the power of the Anglo-Norman monarchy, instead of being projected across the Channel, is projected to the British extremities. Wales, Scotland, Ireland. Uh, He also accumulates, uh, because of his pressure, his Henry VII-style pressure on the elite in screwing them financially. He accumulates a vast cash hoard, David Carpenter, I'm sure, will correct me, of the order perhaps of 120,000 more in cash, which is three or four times ordinary royal revenue. It's an immense sum. He then blows the lot on a single campaign. Remember always, constitutional change should be understood against a background of failure in war. It's one of the absolutely crucial things to comprehend. And he fails. Uh, he, he, he himself is, uh, doesn't get very far in France. And his, 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 his supporters are completely shattering the defeated by Philip Augustus of France at the Battle of Bouvines. It's very interesting looking at the nicknames of the two kings. John is John Lackland. And didn't he lack it after that point? Philip Augustus is named by his first biographer, Augustus, on the the grounds that he augments, that he increases his land holding. So John then has experienced shattering defeat. He's lost all his money. He finds himself literally exposed to his enemies uh, in 1214, 1215. There'd been a parallel great struggle with the church uh, in which he'd also, as a desperate measure, had to surrender to that as well, the ending of the interdict and so on. And John then finds himself, as it were, without a leg to stand on. And the only leg that he had to stand on is chopped away when the barons managed to take London. So this is the king who's not simply lost the better half of his inheritance. He's also lost his capital. And he finds himself then confronting the barons, first in the, the, first in the temple in London, in January 1515, and then, as it were, with, with, with accelerating pressure through the first five months of the year. And all the time, two things are going on. There is intense military pressure, which finally swings over into full-scale civil war. Secondly, there is the pressure to yield a charter, to give some sort of expression of liberties. And the idea uh, seems to derive, you raise the question of the Anglo-Saxons, there are indeed histories of settlements between the king and their people, going back to somebody who I'm sure is absolutely in the forefront of all your minds, Ethelred the Unready, uh, two centuries. No, we laugh. 
an idea of a settlement between the king and his people is there, uh, and vague memories of Anglo-Saxon laws and so on. But all of these things are expressed in early 1215 by an appeal for the charter of Henry I, the coronation charter of Henry I. Henry I, of course, is the youngest son of the conqueror. Uh, He seizes the throne, uh, uh, probably after having murdered his brother. They were a bloody lot. Um, And he makes a grand gesture uh, towards his people in the Charter of Liberties. Now, Henry, like everybody else, quotes the juicy bits of Magna Carta. No one will be so, no one will deny, no one will be delayed justice. These were very, very splendidly described by John Gillingham as empty, high-sounding, and impossible to do anything with. The great, the, just one second. The greater the, right, you shut up for a minute. The greater, <laughs> the greater the degree of guff in any piece of legislation, the less actual teeth it's got. And the key thing, why, why you go back to the Charter of Henry I, it's filled with dreary detail, as most of Magna Carta is. Magna Carta is a highly practical document. So you get this idea but, of the Charter but, but, of... David, the fact of the matter is these sentiments have lasted 800 years. They have. The, and, and sentiments so, are, sentiments and, are easy on the ear, uh, and nobody needs to apply but, them. But, but no, of course, the, they're not just sentiments, are they? They do have a... They well, have a solid practice. And I'm going to come to Dinah. No, Henry, to, the great history... I'm going to come to Dinah to ask us a little bit about the, the solid, the solid no, meaning of the I, law from, from the, in the law from the 17th century. But sorry, but sorry they, look, please, this is being silly, Henry. These clauses have no purchase at law at all. Uh, This is really important we understand, that the idea that Magna Carta establishes the rule of law in 1215 is absolutely absurd. Um, This is why we have constant struggles against the king uh, uh, very quickly, uh, why we have Simon de Montfort, it's why we have have the, the, the struggles of Edward II, of Richard II. It's why in the 17th century the attempt at making Magna Carta fundamental law by Cook fails completely, and why the lawyers are completely useless at defending it. Diana, would you like to talk a bit about what David's very contrarian view, that Magna Carta is is not worth the parchment it's written on? I I don't think it is a contrarian view. I think actually it's almost become an orthodoxy for people to say, (laughs) oh, Magna Carta is a bit of an irrelevant piece of guff. Uh, I don't think it is irrelevant guff. I think it's very important. Not for what it meant in 1215, but for the symbol that it became and for the significance that it acquired as part of the common law. Um, To give you uh, what seems to me to be a good example, uh, Blackstone's commentaries on the law of England, the classic 18th century text of English common law principles uh, published in 1765. Blackstone when considering the notion of absolute fundamental rights under the English Constitution, takes as his starting point Magna Carta, which he calls that great charter obtained at the point of a sword. And he identifies from Magna Carta three fundamental rights, which actually I think you can discern in Clause 39, the right to uh, life or personal autonomy, the right to liberty, and the right to private property. Because what Clause 39 says is that you cannot apply force to somebody, you cannot exile them, you cannot take their property, and you cannot imprison them without judgment of their peers or without the application of the law. And from that, from that principle, he identifies those three fundamental rights. And then he says this. He says, in order for those three fundamental rights to have any purchase, they must be supported by ancillary rights, And he identifies three of those as well. The first is the rights and privileges of Parliament. The second is the limitations on the royal prerogative and on the executive. And the third is the right of access to justice. And the significance of Clause clause 40, to no man will we sell, delay or deny justice, is that that encapsulates the notion of access to justice. So that what you have, I think, a Magna Carta is the kernel of two basic constitutional principles. Firstly, the rule of law and the protection of fundamental rights. 
And secondly, the need for access to court to support the rule of law. And that concept runs through the common law. You can see it in modern case law, important cases like Witham about access to justice, medical justice. And whether you're actually citing Magna Carta, and I, I, I cite Blackstone's commentaries, and I've done it in many cases, and it gets much more purchase with a common law judge in many occasions than the Human Rights Act does because Blackstone speaks to the breast of the judges in the common law. And, and the origin of those principles ultimately is a Magna Carta. And if you look at a case like the Al-Rawi decision that said that the common law would not tolerate secret courts, that is a passionate declaration by the Supreme Court of the importance of basic principles of open justice, uh, which ultimately uh, have their origin, not in Magna Carta itself, but in Magna Carta as a symbol as it's developed uh, over the uh, following 800 years. Uh, Gordon Brown, in his adjournment speech last night, I was in the House of Commons last night, again, massively evoking great traditional constitutional liberties going back to 1200. Now, the problem, and this is why I want to bring in the historians uh, in relation to a politician, is that as an amateur looking at all this, as a, as a young politician, what you really notice is an attempt by people like David to make the... 13th century seem seriously weird, a seriously alien world. So we have a sort of vision that it's almost impossible to connect to these people, that the barons are a kind of rugby club, that their views are bound up with crusades, with extraordinary half-magical beliefs about the power of body parts, that half of this is taking place in the context of papal excommunication, that all these people are not really English, they, they have strange international lives, they travel to Palestine, they speak French, their notion of nationality is just evolving. Uh, John's brother Richard writes this wonderful poem when he's captured in which he, he talks about his English friends, his Norman friends, his Poitavin friends, and yet we're not quite sure what any of these things means because when he returns to Britain he has William the Lion of Scotland walking in front of him with a sword and what exactly is this relationship, and yet, and yet, and this is what I want to try to bring David in on, and yet somehow coming from Afghanistan to Britain, you get a sense of something very modern happening. When you go through the Great Charter, you see a whole series of stipulations about what the king shouldn't do. And it's those, those very concrete things. The king shouldn't be able to take my cart without paying a just price that strikes me as somebody who's been dealing with the collapse of law in Afghanistan as very, very relevant to real lives, and something that today, still in countries like Afghanistan, we're really struggling to achieve. In Helmand, you can't, as a landowner or a villager, really guarantee that somebody's not going to come along and nick your cart without paying you for it. So what I wanted to sort of bring maybe the two Davids in on well, is, is that question of that connection. How do we connect? And that's also why I thought Dinah was so romantic and moving, because... She seems, to be able, she seems to be able to move beyond this 800-year gap, a gap that's bigger than the gap to Agincourt, back to this alien, weird world of people that we could barely recognize, huge, muscular people waving swords around with strange beliefs about Jerusalem, and yet she feels it's something in her current practice. And, and that I found profoundly moving and exciting. I would, I'd yeah. like to bring in David Carpenter. I don't know if he's got a microphone. Are you mic'd up? Or have you got, if somebody could bring David a microphone. David's wonderful, but makes, among other many interesting observations, the difference... Uh, he points out how many times the word land, the idea of law of the land, appears in Magna Carta, something that had never occurred to me. And so, apart from it just being a medieval creation, it seems that it actually was harking back to some sense, some mythic sense of a, a land that had justice before. Is that right, David? Yeah, well, thank you. Well, on the way here in the taxi with David, I said I'd try and say everything he said was bonkers. Um, but actually, I don't say that because I thought I agreed with a lot of what David said. But I would pick up two points of Rory that I think the Charter survived and was a success for two reasons. One was that it asserted a universal principle that the king was subject to the law. And I'll come back to that and what David um, saying that had no effect. And secondly, it did deal with very real issues, very, very important issues for people at the time. And you're so right about the seizure of corn, carts, everything like that. These are really important issues. And that's why the Charter was seemed... It really gripped the 
hearts and minds, everyone. Now, two points about what David said. David said the charter in the short term was a failure. That's true in a way, but also not true, because actually by the end of 1215, it was hugely well known, and that's because it had been sent to all the cathedrals. And also, recent research shows lots and lots of unofficial copies of the charter were circulated. So it wasn't just a symbol. The detail was very well known by the end of 1215, and that was why it was revived. Now, David scoffed at the charter and said it had no effect. Um, And, of course, that's exactly what lots of Englishmen in the 13th century said, that the, the, the king breaks the charter, it can't be enforced. But actually, if you look at the operation of kingship before and after 1215, the charter does seem to be a real watershed between lawless and lawful rule. And by far the greatest indication of that is that whereas King John seized people's property without any lawful process, charged huge sums of money for people to um, get rid of his anger, to recover his benevolence, so that John would charge in offers of money every year something like £25,000, later kings, Henry III and Edward I, that all disappears. There are no offers of money to recover the king's benevolence. There are no arbitrary seizures of property under Henry III, Edward I, at any thing like the same degree. Diana, do you feel that Magna Carta is in the breast of the politicians we have today? Do you feel that they're... Awa- do, well, you the feel they're mag- do you feel that they're <laughs> Magna Carta compliant? <laughs> when, do they think of Magna Carta compliance when they're legislating? Well, I mean, we have, yeah. as I mentioned in my intro, quite a lot of examples where that has not occurred. Yes, I mean, you, you've, you've given examples including secret courts or mass surveillance Uh, examples where uh, there is a tension between civil liberties on the one hand and national security issues on the other. What concerns me at the moment is something much more basic, much more fundamental, and much more closely related to the core of Magna Carta. Uh, what What I said a little bit earlier was that one of the fundamental points that comes out of Magna Carta is the idea that you have to have access to justice, that if you can't enforce your rights in a court... You have no rights. And in that sense, uh, David's right, that universal human rights are guff if they can't be enforced. And that's why what interests me is not so much universal human rights, but British civil liberties that can be enforced in our courts. And what concerns me at the moment is that this government is conducting a sustained and ideological attack on access to court. And it is passing almost without notice in the national media. Uh, I, want to give three, I want to give three examples of it. First of all, uh, the so-called reforms to legal aid. Secondly, the proposals made two weeks ago massively to increase court fees, which have passed almost without comment. And uh, thirdly, the uh, new legislation which will restrict access to judicial review. Uh, Firstly, in in relation to legal aid, as many of you will know, uh, two years ago, the government uh, removed legal aid from most forms of civil litigation. Uh, Whole areas where previously legal aid had been available, it was removed from, including almost all family law cases, except where there is recent evidence of domestic abuse. Uh, This has resulted in... Uh, far greater numbers of cases where people are litigants in person, cases taking much longer, and appalling situations arising in court. Uh, A situation a few weeks ago where uh, a father was seeking access to a child, where the mother said that he had sexually abused the child, where because no legal aid was available, the judge was contemplating a situation where the father would have to cross-examine his own child on the truth of the mother's allegation that he had abused that child. That's an intolerable situation to have in any court, and it is the direct result of government policy. And the Lord Chancellor, Christopher Grayling, sent leading counsel into that court to argue that it was the father's choice to be unrepresented because he had a disposable income of £10,000 a year. I'm not making this up. It happened. So that's the first thing, legal aid. And the Public Accounts Committee yesterday uh, produced a report in which they pointed out that the Ministry of Justice had introduced these reforms without first taking the trouble to work out whether the money they would save would in fact be saved or whether there would simply be knock-on costs in other departments because of the physical and mental harm 
done to people who would no longer be able to get access to legal advice. And the comment of the Public Accounts Committee, a a uh, cross-party committee, was that the Ministry of Justice now has no idea whether it's actually saved any money from these reforms. So that's the first. The second, and I no, want to be no, quick no, about I want, this. I want, I want, um, no, let me on. just deal with the three, and then I'll stop. Be no, no, quick no. with the third, I and then I'm going to come to Rory. because The, I the second is court fees, government. because, of course, Sorry, the, the removal of legal aid... We get the point. Okay, the removal of legal aid... <laughs> we might just ha- say, it's I'm, okay, you've had to We really do get the point. The removal of legal aid means that you can't get a lawyer, but you can still go to court. But what the government is now proposing is massively to increase the fees for bringing an application to 5% of your claim, up to £10,000. Now, so if you have a claim for personal injury or clinical negligence, you could be charged up to £10,000 just for bringing your claim. So even without a lawyer, you can't get into court. Right. Okay, Rory, would you like... Yeah. Um, What we're going to do is we're going to have Rory's going to answer that and then perhaps more questions uh, on... I mean, I I guess I'm not really going to provide a very satisfying response. Um, Firstly, I defer enormously to Dinah on this stuff. I'm not a legal expert. Um, If you really want a government response, I'm afraid there is a government minister here from the Justice Department sitting there. (laughs) Um, I I would say there are two things that struck me, though, with what she said. I mean, the first thing, obviously, is I, I do slightly disagree with her with this idea that rights are guff without enforcement. I think... We have to accept that rights are fundamental and pre-exist the question of enforcement. And if we try to reduce rights simply to cultural practice, which is what David and Dinah both seem to be agreeing to do, I think we move into a rather dangerous world. The second thing where I do agree with her, and I think this relates back to Magna Carta, is the idea that rights in a constitution are not simply about abstract principles, but what is in the Great Charter itself, which is the questions of cost of justice, which Dinah just raised, and process. The fact that quite a lot of the Great Charter is about process is quite an important insight. But that's really me moving into history. And if you want to get into a debate Quick. about legal aid... I've... Quickly, yeah. Lord Folks. Yeah. Long rejoinder to this. No. But, um, the, uh, the, the fact is, there have been cuts in legal aid. We know about that. Uh, some of them are definitely causing hardship at the edges. However, uh, there have to be some cuts, and the next government, whatever, whatever colour it is, is going to continue to make uh, modifications to legal aid. Uh, the judges are doing their best to deal with litigants in person. Uh, but I, I'm absolutely clear that there are some cases where there are hardship. As to judicial review, the government's uh, reforms have been mischaracterised. They're extremely modest. Uh, judicial review has exploded way beyond the scope in which it originally played an important part in challenging government activity. Uh, and uh, all that's happened is some sensible modification of an explosion of judicial review has eventuated. Of course, that's a rather boring answer, but it happens to be an accurate one. Fine. Now, any questions? Well, I'd love some more uh, contributions from you, the audience. There are people up there. Remember, I can't see you. And there's a microphone, fixed microphone up there for anyone who wants to come and shout down at me. And meanwhile, there are roving mics. So anyone wants to talk about or ask questions about... Oh, we've got one up here. I can't see much, but okay. There's a guy in the white shirt. Hello, uh, Frode Hegland. I heard uh, William Marshall mentioned earlier. I'd like to know more about his role, because from my understanding, he made Magna Carta real not to defend people, but to make sure that kings could still be around. Perhaps David Carpenter would like to answer that, would you? William. Uh, we need another mic. Oh, gosh. It's a, there we are. Um, while, while he's getting the mic, let's have a quick question from you. Yeah, I, I'm Claire Gerrard. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a, a doctor. And I'm struck by the, the, question, the comment you made. Sorry, I've forgotten your name. About uh, we have to have laws that are, are based on, on fairness and not on, on the culture. And I'm, I'm sort of reflecting on yesterday's uh, collapse of the CPS trial for a doctor uh, against a female uh, medical uh, mutilation, genital mutilation. And in fact, doctors now are actually not subject to the Human Rights Act in terms of we are found guilty until proven otherwise, we are suspended, uh, all sorts of issues Mm. around the medical profession that we often feel, and somebody that leads a service for sick doctors, that it's trial by the Daily Mail or equivalent newspaper rather than, as I suspect you three earnest people will think, which is trial by the rule of law, which is the way that I want to. So it's a statement and also a question. 
David, would you just like to reply yeah, to the, I could about William on, Marshall? On William Marshall, I mean, he was. The, I think he did play a profound part in the survival of the Charter. Um, it was he and the papal legate who issued the charters of 1216 and 1217, without which the charter wouldn't have survived. Where I would qualify his role is that the charter of 1215, 1617, was granted to free men. So the great majority of the people in this room would not have been free and they would not have benefited from it at all or in a very, very minor way. If you're looking for someone who actually did have a sense of rights for everybody, I think you should go not to William Marshall but to Archbishop Langton and the Charter of 1225, which David very rightly said, has a status the 1215 Charter never had because, as David very rightly said, it was conceded freely by the king. It wasn't coerced. It was in, regard, in return for a chat, tax. That has a new preamble in which it is granted to everybody, to everybody. So the 1225 Charter is quite different than 1215 one. The 1215 one is only for the free. The 1225 Charter is for everyone. And I think that was Archbishop Langton's work. So if you're looking for a hero, not in negotiating the, uh, the 1215 Charter, I don't think he played a part in the build-up around demands. If you're looking for how the Charter survived, you should look to the church and you should look to Archbishop Langton. Of course, you make, the point, quick, you make the point in your Henry, book. Sorry, you make the point in your book that it hardly mentions women. It's only one. Is, a, is, that, is that right? Only one place. Does the it charter mention? reflects obviously the lack of a public role of women. Yeah. It may, names thirty-nine men. It doesn't name a single woman. On the other hand. The famous clause, no free man is to be outlawed in prison. But there was a sense in 1215 that um, man homo, the Latin, did embrace men and women. There was a sense that it meant human being. On the other hand, if you go on with that clause, it says no free man is to be outlawed in prison save by lawful judgment of his peers. Well, women would have to rely entirely on men to give that judgment because women were not on juries. They didn't give judgment in court. So the clause does both reflect something for women and also the lack of a public role of women. The most important clause for women probably in the Charter is that preventing women from being uh, widows from being forced into remarriage. And that has been seen as a sort of step on the emancipation of women. <laughs> and again, uh, for David, that did have a real effect I know. I know. in the 13th century. David, and just quickly, your point about William Marshall. William Marshall, I think, is the Duke of Wellington of the early 13th century. He's an upright military chap, fundamentally conservative, but a fair dealer. And his great contribution in 1216 is he does not invoke laws of treason. That the settlement, what is astonishing about the settlement of 1216 is that it incorporates the opponent, pardon? 1270. But it incorporates the opponents of the king as well as his supporters. So there is, there is none of the kind of purges that you get later on. There is an, despite this intense debate, it's very English. Both parties finally agree and shake hands. And if you look in English history, everything that becomes permanent is finally agreed by right and left. This is exactly what happens with the revolution of the 17th century. You, know, you get this extreme revolution of, of 1649 and then this middle ground of, 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 of 1689. It's exactly what happens with the Reform Act. The Reform Act of 1832 <laughs> only really works once Disraeli picks it up. Uh, just just that, that, once Disraeli picks it up in 1867, <laughs> and at which point it becomes common ground. Uh, David, now. can I pick you up on just this, this very English point? Um, I mean, in what sense are they really very English? I mean, Langston's been they're sitting around in Paris for 20 years. No, yeah, but they're no, inventing no. Englishness. They're constantly calling themselves English. Of course, the opponents of the king do the unforgivable thing, which is to bring in a Frenchman. Um, as, remember, they are traitors. They try to bring in a French prince, mm. who, interestingly enough, does not offer to renew the charter. <laughs> the, the strangest thing you do, you know, you bring in, because you hate John so much and then claim to hate William Marshall, you bring in a French prince without actually making him agree to issue the charter, which is another reason why William Marshall as a shrewd politician does it. But all of this, you see, England starts to invent itself once you lose Normandy. 
Um, and once, once you actually have to, to focus primarily within the British Isles, uh, once you also have to choose allegiance, something that William Marshall was very reluctant to do, until you lose Normandy, everybody's got cross allegiances because people have got multiple feudal allegiances to the King of France, to the Duke of Normandy, to the King of England, to whoever. And suddenly, and it's no accident, and David knows infinitely more about this than I do, I think it's no accident but the, but that by the time you're getting into the 1220s, you're starting to use treason. Um, because England is starting to become a self-defined entity with a single pole of allegiance. Now, I want you la- a little later on to, to vote on this question, to stick up your hands on the question of whether we need a new charter, a new constitutional settlement. Um, and I wonder, Diana, whether you could, with your knowledge of the law and your considerable work for civil liberties, whether you could address that now. And I, I think that David has put his finger on one of the key issues here, which is how do you have any notion of fundamental rights when you have untrammeled parliamentary sovereignty? And it's the, it's the essential tension that exists in any attempt to form a British constitution. And it's the underlying reason why there is so much stress and tension between Parliament and both Strasbourg, the European Absolutely. Court of Human Rights, and the Luxembourg Court under the EU, because uh, both, as a result of both the Human Rights Act and the European Communities Act, there is some form of modification of parliamentary sovereignty, different in each case. EU law trumps uh, domestic primary legislation. You, you can go to an English court and you can rely on European legislation to trump uh, a United Kingdom Act of Parliament. The Human Rights Act is actually a much more subtle and nuanced piece of legislation. And in a way, it's odd to me that it attracts so much hostility from uh, this government because it's much more conservative in its outlook. It preserves parliamentary sovereignty. All it does is that parliament instructs the judges to interpret legislation compatibly with human rights as far as possible. But if not, they can make a declaration of incompatibility but the legislation remains in force. And by the way, the Human Rights Act does not make the British courts subservient to Strasbourg. It only says they have to have regard to Strasbourg judgments. So one of the oddities about the hostility of the Human Rights Act is that actually the Human Rights Act already gives most of the things that the government says they want. Now, uh, the Conservative Party now has, as part of its manifesto, a commitment to repeal the Human Rights Act and replace it with a British Bill of Rights. When you look at at the substance of the rights in the Human Rights Act, most of them are common law rights anyway. You can argue around the edges, particularly about Article 8 and privacy, but most of the fundamental rights in the Human Rights Act are familiar to us at common law. The really interesting question is, how will a British Bill of Rights deal with the tension between fundamental rights and parliamentary sovereignty? That, I think, is the key question. I don't know what the answer to it is. I'd be interested to know what Lord Folkes thinks about that. And I note that Lord Folkes did not mention the increase in court fees. Okay. Let's, let's, poor Ed, let's, let's ask Rory about the tension between the rule of law rights and parliamentary sovereignty. Well, I suppose a couple of things. I mean, I think the first thing is that the other reason why Britain should be very proud of the European court is that we helped create it. Uh, and it has been something... I mean, one of the things that makes me embarrassed about this European court issue is it seems to me that Britain rather enjoyed the European court through the 60s and 70s when it functioned as a way of telling off people in Greece and Spain and telling them they weren't treating people as well as we did in Britain and only began to get worried by the European court when the European court began turning around and saying uh, that we needed to give our prisoners voting rights and things of that sort. So I'm, I'm quite sympathetic towards the European court. I think the bigger issue around parliamentary sovereignty is the fact that we don't actually have a constitution in the American sense. We don't really have a difference between constitutional law and normal law. I went through this in my own life very soon after I joined Parliament where I discovered that Parliament was proposing to abolish the House of Lords on the basis of a simple majority in Parliament. In other words, the government whips were standing outside the chamber and trying on the basis literally of a 50 plus 1 vote in Parliament to abolish the Second Chamber. It's completely unimaginable in any country in the world. Any other country, the idea of a constitution is to protect the people against the, the government and the Parliament. The idea would be that in order to do that in any other country, 
you'd need some special procedure. You'd need a two-thirds majority, you'd need a referendum, you'd need an election in between. Um, so I, I would say the first thing I'd really like to do in Britain, and the inspiration I'd like to take in a very, very indirect and bogus fashion from Magna Carta, I, I admit it's indirect and bogus, would be to try to introduce procedures in the House of Commons in order to ensure that you can't simply do things like abolish the second chamber on the basis of a 50-plus-1 vote in Parliament, and that we need to move towards some respect for the Constitution which used to exist on the basis of all this sort of wonderful, romantic sense of our ancient Constitution, a Parliament that used to be filled with lawyers who were very sensitive to the Constitution, deferential to the Constitution, has been replaced by a culture which is so ahistorical mm. that we're perfectly capable of simply waking up in the morning with no forms of cultural historical constraints and tearing the whole thing up. And I think once we enter that world, we need much, much deeper impediments to parliamentary action over the Constitution. David, would you agree? Would you... <laughs> I would completely agree. I mean, the great problem, uh, without being too party political, is the Blair government yes. with its notion. No, it's, no, no it's, a, no, it's the notion of the year one, of starting from scratch, of all history being bunk and junk and something that you can forget. I mean, the process of legislating a new parliament for Scotland, you know, at a whim simply as a piece of party political advantage. And we're now reaping the shocking rewards of this process. Yes, we do need, uh, I think we need a fundamental, radical new constitutional settlement. I will go much further. I think that the idea of parliamentary representation, which emerges as a direct result of 1225, further formulated in 1265 uh, by, you know, by de Montfort's parliament, that notion of representation uh, was the latest wheeze in the middle of the 13th century. It is looking ever such a tad frayed, uh, you know, 750 years later. I would also like us to start looking much harder at what the real substance of Magna Carta was about. The principal concern of Magna Carta is not legal process, it's property. The, the, the entire anchorage of Magna Carta is property. The reason for the success of Britain and the West is the security of property right. We have become utterly frivolous on this subject. You've been mentioning all these breaches of legal rights. What about the right of the Exchequer simply to take money from you before a court or a quasi-court has actually heard that it's decided that it's due to you. This is monstrous. John would have absolutely loved it. It's exactly the kind of thing that he did. Um, and I, have many lawyers agitated about it? No, because of the general human rights left in nature. Actually, the there's, a, there's a judicial review of that um, Good. Cur excellent. currently underway, excellent. so I'm excellent. afraid you're wrong about that too. Well, well, um, ex <laughs> well uh, it'll be very interesting to see what the lawyers say about it. Now, I'd very much like to, to have questions and views on the question of a new constitutional settlement. Not just a new Bill of Rights, but a constitutional settlement which would incorporate a Bill of Rights. So it would be uh, Magna Carta point two or something or other. Go ahead, please. Thank yeah. you very much. Joanna Malins. I'm a solicitor. Can I say that one of the great glories of this country, legally speaking, is that we have an unwritten constitution which bends and break, doesn't break, that's the point. It bends and moves in accordance with the needs of the time and historical development. Now, one of the things which we have had thrown up in this country is the tension between, um, as Diana Rose was saying, about between the judiciary and the legislature, but that's to do with the separation of powers. We've got the separation of powers, which is crucial We've got the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary in this country, and they interact in this very malleable, excellent fashion. And furthermore, because we have an unwritten constitution, we're able to have as part of our constitution all these ancient things. Dr. Starkey would know, things like the Clarendon Code, all these ancient pieces of... Um, sorry, I can't quite quote when. Well. Um, do, do you know what actually you're talking about? There are so many things which have come down the centuries, which are still God part repealed. and parcel. Maybe, maybe I'm oh. wrong, but they're part and parcel of things which 
we still use and we still need. And I wouldn't want an American system where the Supreme Court could come in and overrule what Parliament's done. But, of done. course, a, a sovereign parliament can then legislate against the rule of law, which is really Rory's mm. point, isn't it? I mean, it's a gentleman's agreement that you're relying on, and you're hoping that that lasts. Right. And, and, and people like me, uh, I speak now not neutrally, would say that's a worrying thing. Well, I can see that. Can I make now, a, I, anyone else going to have a... You've made a wonderful point there. Uh, let, let me just... Yeah, super. Okay, where well, I can't see... The mo- ah, there's a guy waving his order paper. <laughs> uh, and I think his name is George, if I'm right. Right, George Kershaw. Yeah. Um, could I ask about the right of the state um, to defend its own secrets? And I suppose in this context, Snowden is an interesting question. Who would you like to talk to? What about like, Rory, would you? Well, yeah, but you. I mean, you know more about this than anyone else. I, mean, I don't know why... Are you not allowed to speak? Well, uh, I am allowed to speak. <laughs> we give you permission. Yes, Thank you. you Thank permission. That's what I was waiting for. Well, if you want my view, it's um, certainly the state should have secrets and certainly the state should be able to defend itself. But uh, I also think that in a democracy, one of the things that we have prior to an election particularly is informed consent. And I think the, the, uh, any democratic public should be given as much information uh, about the way they're being monitored as possible because then we can say whether we like this form of government or we can choose somebody else. But that's my view. Can I say uh, and I, I've had a lot of experience of, in cases where um, national security has been used as a reason to withhold evidence from a party or to withhold evidence from a court. And I've seen uh, many times that when the evidence has finally come out... There's been no national security implication at all, mm. but too often what the evidence actually does is to embarrass the security services. And I think there's a big problem of a confusion between what's damaging to national security and what's damaging to MI5. And I think sometimes those two uh, are seen as the same thing, and they're not. Very good point. Now, there are lots of arms stuck up. There's a man in a blue shirt who's going to get a chance. But then we are, I'd like some women to... Would you? Yes. No, you're not a woman. Go on, go, go, yeah. go. So um, where David talked about uh, rights and charters coming out of either revolution or war, or civil war, whatever, um, how might a new settlement come about, um, especially when so many politicians seem to think that uh, our liberties can just be taken away little bit by little bit, and indeed they get away with it? Okay, well, let let, let me take that. I mean, I think that one of the fundamental problems for somebody like me that's very obsessed with constitutional issues is that basically the public doesn't seem to be that interested. I mean, if you were to ask people to list their top 20 priorities, the Constitution very rarely features. Um, uh, And so colleagues quite understandably say to me when I bang on about this kind of stuff, well, really, Rory, I mean, if you talk to people on the doorsteps, they want to talk about the economy or they want to talk about the NHS, but they're not really very interested in constitutional reform. There is another problem, of course, which is a turkeys for Christmas problem. I mean, if, for example, we were to propose that uh, 650 members of parliament were too many and 100 would do us perfectly well, it might be quite difficult to get that legislation through the House of, <laughs> House of Commons. Um, But I think the final thing is that in order to really get this change, we're relying on you. I mean, we really need to get a popular movement going. And one of the the difficulties with this is where does the legitimacy come from? Where does the energy come from? How can I actually lead a party through an election saying we want to bring constitutional reform unless I can bring you with me? Well, what may very well happen, of course, is that the next election could well produce a crisis of ungovernability. It seems to me that we are quite likely to face a position in which it will be impossible to construct a working majority in the House, uh, or that you will construct combinations that are so manifestly outrageous um, that there will be widespread popular discontent, particularly in England. I think there's just one other point on this question of rights. What Magna Carta is about, and David's book demonstrates this magnificently, is this sense of land, terrae, the land of England. The great problem with the European Convention on Human Rights is that it's not British. It's not felt to be English. Mm. Ever since the reign of Henry VIII, there's been this passionate sense that no foreign body has any right to impose law on England. And, you know, there is a catastrophe that it's the Treaty of Rome when we've had 500 
getting on for 500 years of passionate anti-Romanism. I mean, as I always say, there's a direct line from Henry VIII to Nigel Farage. Henry VIII... <laughs> Henry VIII... <laughs> Henry VIII is the... F- they all had foreign wives. even had a German wife. There is a very, very real sense. England is uniquely sceptical on Europe. And I think this is one of... The, it's not simply the longevity of English institutions. It's this sense of the, the foreign beginning in the channel. But there's also another sense that the way in which the systems of law of continental Europe are radically different, the way in which words change their meaning as you go across the channel, the uh, l'intérêt public is something completely different from the public interest. And it's assessed in a completely different way. And we need that awareness. This is not little Englanderism. It's simply a respect to a peculiar and rather distinguished history. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a guy out there in a beige jersey. Go ahead. Um, I work for a charity based in the Royal Courts of Justice which helps litigants in person um, go through the court process. And I would be in favour of a constitution based on Clause 40 of the Magna Carta. But after hearing the deeply insulting comments like Lord Forkshire said that only the fringes are suffering at the moment, how can you possibly trust today's government to write it? OK, any more, uh, any more points? Because we're going to take... Uh, I, I assume, David, you are pro for, uh, for a new constitution. Oh, definitely. Definitely, yes. Yeah. OK, so now anyone disagree with David? Yes, yes. This guy up here. So, talk, looking like, at... Have women all fallen silent in this audience? Uh, commenting on the fact that the, uh, the early comment about the Magna Carta being romantic and the development of, of British law as a change between civil liberties, as in defining the edges of liberties, into now we're talking about the establishment of a Bill of Rights which says what you can do. Uh, are we at a stage now where the Magna Carta is dead and was the end of civil liberties because actually it, defined, it had to define things that we were told we could do where, and law has now got to American semantics where we have to list everything we're allowed to do rather than having liberties where we could just get on with, with our lives without government interfering unless somebody gets in the way. Yes. Anyone else on this question of whether we should have a new constitution? I can't... Can I, um, ah, yes. I've got a slightly associated question, but no-one's mentioned how technology is going to change um, the next 25, 30 years. that's what I was meaning, well, precisely, yeah. A great deal of what you've been saying, Rory was talking earlier on about, you know, in 300, 300 years' time, we'll be, you know, many more people will be um, enjoying our rights, etc., which is very romantic. But surely all of this, a lot of what you've been saying is, is romantic guff, very lovely. But what about genetically uh, modified human beings, which, which are not far away? really, even if they're only slightly genetically modified, or drones, robots, all that sort of stuff. It's all coming. Isn't that what's going to make the running for Magna Carta? Isn't that going to frame the debate in the future, technology? That's exactly what Tim Berners-Lee has has begun to work on, hasn't he? He wants a a Magna Carta of the internet, by which he means a Magna Carta in the modern world. And, of course, you, 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 you touched on the subject of artificial intelligence, which is absolutely key in the next 50 years, because we'll be run by algorithms, uh, um, so, and I cannot imagine any robot I, respecting I, your rights. I'd say in response to that, though, I mean, the, the, fundamentally we're talking about humans here. And uh, this whole debate, I mean, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about Magna Carta, constitutions, or parliament, is about our sense of humans, human dignity, human rights. And a world that you're envisaging, a world of genetically modified creatures, of drones, of technology, uh, is not only a horrendous world, but it's a, it's a world that, that, that would indeed marginalise all this conversation. This conversation is based on the idea of us, of people. It's not based on some weird technological universe. Well, but the trouble is, um, Brave New World in the 1930s envisaged the world you're describing brilliantly. And we are within a whisker. You know, we're now, we are now creating, we've just created the feelies and the smellies. You all know Brave New World, don't you? Infinitely more compelling than 1984. <coughs> it is an horrific vision, which we are within a whisker of a society driven by consumerism, by travel, by leisure, by pleasure, in which you have the Archie Kant, you know, who present, spends, spends his time feeling breasts. I mean, it's not, not at all far from the world that we're in now. Um, and the idea of freedom in that world is non-existent. It's a managed world. And unless we fight, unless we have that freedom of speech that so many want to take, 
away, we'll go there. Now, Diana, would you like to say something just before... I haven't... Would you like to say anything to this final point of whether we should have a new constitution? Are you, can you make a passionate case for it? And I, I, I don't feel strongly about whether okay. we should have a written constitution or not. What concerns me more is that we uh, maintain the rule of law and that that means uh, that we continue to have proper access to justice. And that, that's what troubles me more than any question of a written constitution. Um, I'd say what what troubles me most in Britain at the moment is the idea of politics and citizenship, that we've inherited an idea which had its sort of height with figures like Gladstone, and a very striking Gordon Brown yesterday in his speech kept referring to Gladstone all the way through his speech, of, of man as a political animal, of our fundamental function being politics. And my experience turning up as a junior member of the House of Commons is, of course, the discovery that, uh, according to recent opinion polls, the average person in Britain thinks about politics for exactly seven minutes a week. So there's this huge gap between this idea that our fundamental function as human beings is to engage in the dispute and the action of politics. And I I would say that some of the formal procedural issues of rights are deeply, deeply important, but they're deeply important as a reflection of a notion of human dignity, that the more fundamental things can be re-energized also through making people citizens, through creating structures of local democracy where people can play an active role in their own communities, through moving away from this horrible world that David Starkey suggested, which is sort of teetering somewhere between King John and Benny Hill or somewhere between sort of Aldous Huxley and Henry VIII, that that horrible sort of Gothic school prison house that's the House of Commons, towards something that actually energizes people, that unleashes, and this is what I, I want to conclude on, the fact that we've never been so educated as a nation, we've never been so healthy as a nation, we've never been so well-travelled, that the people in this room are far better off than their parents and grandparents, and yet somehow, as a nation, we're much less than the sum of our parts. Mm. That's, That's a tremendously interesting thought. So, so I want to thank David Starkey for a wonderful performance as ever, Diana for her great eloquence, and Rory for his great honesty and other guests in the audience. Thank you very much, audience. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.